0: Your favorite band's about to play a sold-out show. You got in... Over here! ...with a friend and found a spot close enough to see the set list. They're definitely playing your song. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it. The Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell is largely an opinion talk show. All-Hit Radio! Welcome to The X-Zone, a place
1: where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back to The X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, www.exoneradiotv.com, And you can always listen to our archives at www.exxonepodcast.com My guest this hour is Paul Kimball. We've had the pleasure of having Paul on the show many times. We've talked about UFOs. We've talked about his, his uh, television series. But tonight we're going to be talking to Paul about his brand new book that is out. It's called The Other Side of Truth. And joining me now from the beautiful province of nova scotia is paul kimball hey paul welcome back to the x-zone hey rob always good
2: to be in the x-zone with the x-zone nation and uh and of course with you and always good to be talking about the strange things that we wind up talking
1: about that isn't that true we never know where we're going to end up when we start this hour Uh, but first of all paul i want to congratulate you on your new book the other side of truth uh, where you discuss a wide range of subjects from ufos to ghosts to reincarnations and um, tell me, which did you find most intriguing writing your
0: book?
2: I think they're I think they're all intriguing because um, they're all genuinely strange and weird and mm-hmm. thought provoking. But I have to say, um, you know, and I'd spent years making films about UFOs and a TV series about ghosts, so I knew those pretty well. It was reincarnation, which is something that I hadn't really turned my mind to in my 45 years up until now. Um, when I started looking into that, that was the one that I found the most interesting. When I was younger, I sort of had these experiences. I think most people probably have. Whereas mm-hmm. as a child, you kind of remember things happen to you or you kind of remember what sort of maybe seem like past lives. Yeah. Or at least you could later on in your life, you could look back and say, oh, wait, maybe that was a past life. Um, or you could look back and say, maybe it was just me imagining or whatever. But I had, I had some of those. So I thought, mm. and when I was looking into the reincarnation thing, I think that's the one that maybe touches the most. I think they all touch on sort of our existential dilemma of who we are. But reincarnation really deals with the concept of, is there something for us after this existence? Whether it's, you know, moving on to heaven, if you're a religious person of a particular sort, other religious traditions believe in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. So that's the one that I was focusing on in that particular chapter. And, you know, when you look into when when I mirrored some of my own past experiences with, the research done by people like Dr. I, the late Dr. Ian Stevenson and uh, other scientific researchers who looked into reincarnation in a scientific way, um, yeah, that's probably the one that I found the most interesting, most eye-opening, and the one that sort of makes, I think, all of us kind of sit back and wonder, um, you know, where are we headed after this? And so maybe we're headed back here. That's the That's the thing about reincarnation. Maybe we're not going somewhere else. Maybe we're coming back here. And uh, then I get into discussing many of the different possibilities about why we could be coming back, how we could be coming back, and what the reason for us coming back would be.
1: Paul, the subtitle of your book is "The Paranormal: The Art of Imagination and the Human Condition." Can you uh, give us a little bit of an idea on how these all tie together?
2: Absolutely not. I don't have a clue. No, it just—it just just seemed like a really catchy title, the art of the imagination. It works. and it hit all, you know, it's like, check this, check this. Mm-hmm. So I can sell it in as many different places. Um, but seriously, the it is about the paranormal. I kind of, on my Facebook page the other day, I, I wrote, I have written a book about God and my relationship with God without actually ever really mentioning God. Um, because at the end of the day, what is God but some sort of non- advanced non-human intelligence, mm-hmm. which may or may not be interacting with us. So I started the book with the premise, look, I'm not going to yeah. argue over whether this is happening or not. I'm just gonna work on the assumption, if you don't like it, don't read the book, that this is happening, that we are interacting with an advanced non-human intelligence of some sort. Call it God, call it aliens. I'm not even gonna tell you what it is, I'm just Mm -hmm. gonna offer a bunch of possibilities. The important thing to me is, what might that interaction mean? I'm tired, I spent 10 years making films about UFOs and ghosts and stuff, and I'm tired of listening to people argue about whether it's happening or not. That gets you nowhere. I'm just gonna assume it is happening, and use it as a starting point for a thought experiment about ourselves, hence the human condition part, the paranormal, our relationship with this advanced non-human intelligence and how the two might link. But view it from an artistic point of view. Because when I started looking at all of these things kind of in a unified feel, feel theory, if mm-hmm. you will, it started resembling, and I come from an artistic background, as you know. I was a musician in the yeah. 90s here in Halifax in the big Halifax pop explosion and now a filmmaker. And most of my friends... In one way or
1: another, are all right, hearts. Paul. I'm going to have to get you to hold on to that thought. Sure. We've got to take our, our hard break here. Exonation, good friend of the Exxon, Paul Kimball's our special guest. He's got a brand new book. We're talking about it this hour. The other side of truth. His website: www.redstarfilmtv.com. And Paul will be. Uh, we, Paul and I, will be back on the other side of this two-minute commercial break. Don't go away. this product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. Hello, I'm Justina Marsh, and with my dad Pete, we are going to present a new show called Too Good to be True. Together, we are aiming to discover more truths about this world and beyond. Do you have unanswered questions about the world? Do you ever wonder about aliens, conspiracy theories, or the universe? There are many shows discussing subjects such as pyramids or UFOs, but we want to relay this information based on our own research, including from spiritual means. Hopefully, listeners will be helped with their own beliefs and will appreciate the psychic insights that add to the previous research and information. We both look forward to sharing this insight and beginning this journey with our listeners. Visit xzbn.net for more information about when to listen. Welcome back, everyone. Paul Kimball's my guest this hour here in the X-Zone. He's got a brand new book out, Xo Nation, The Other Side of Truth. His website, www.redstarfilmtv.com. That's redstarfilmtv.com dot com uh paul uh, before we went to the break we were talking about your subtitle called the paranormal the after the art of the imagination and the human condition and you were you were explaining it to us and uh, i had to cut you off because of the hard break but please continue
2: yeah, I was doing a terrible job of it, too, so that's good. Give me gave me two minutes to kind of, you know, refocus, uh-huh. uh, channel my inner President Obama, and try and come back and do a better job. Then, um,
1: So so who's your Mick Romney, then? I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have asked you about it.
2: Uh, I have a stuffed animal on my uh, bed, and that has the relative intelligence of Mick Romney. So. <laughs> uh. Uh, he's part of the 1%. So... Which is weird, because, you know, it kind of relates, and maybe we can talk about this a bit later, the human condition element. There's a whole chapter in the book that talks about where we've been, who we are, and where we're going. And Mm -hmm. some of that relates into, frankly, people like Mitt Romney and, you know, the question of disparities of wealth and income and, and place in society and how we view ourselves. But that's down the road. So, um I think I was talking about the artistic element. Right. Yes. I looked at all these things like UFOs and ghosts and, and all of this sort of stuff. And I said, well, okay, what does, this re- what does this seem like to me? To me, it seems like a form of art. You can look at UFOs, for instance, and the debunkers or the um, evangelical disbelievers, as I'll call them, often disparagingly call UFOs, oh, they're lights in the sky. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what they are, lights that you see in the field or something like that. Well, okay, I'll run with that. If they are lights in the sky, many of them are indeed explainable, of course, but an awful, an awful lot of them are not. And when you look at lights in the sky, you can start seeing other things. For instance, uh, my good friend Greg Bishop and I were at a baseball game in Victorville, California, a year and a half ago, minor league baseball game. And after the game, they had a fireworks display. I'm sure everyone's seen one. You have them on Natal Day, 4th of July, Canada Day here. Uh, some of them are quite elaborate and quite ornate and very artistic. What are they? They're lights in the sky. You can go to the Burning Man Festival in Nevada and see all sorts of strange things, frankly. But they have fireworks displays, lights in the sky, that kind of thing. I mean, I can go down a very long list sure. of sort of lights in the sky. Yeah. Sometimes those lights, if you go to a circus du Soleil show, for instance, those lights can be used to communicate a particular... Not necessarily a message, although some lights can be used to communicate a message. Mm-hmm. Uh, semaphore is a good example. But communicate a feeling, a mood, um, trying to get you to react to whatever's going on. Musicians know that pretty well, too, because if you go to see a U2 stage show or something, an awful lot of it... I mean, the music. I'm a musician. I I really just care about the music. But I have to admit, when you go to see these hundred dollar shows in Montreal or whatever with you two or these big bands, the lights, the the sort of it's an overarching, all encompassing entertainment experience. Mm -hmm. And they're using, you know, when Bono's singing with or without you, the light, the lighting is different, much more moody, much more um, sort of mellow and, and let's call it romantic, than perhaps if they're doing one of the rockier numbers. And speaking of romance, any guy would know that you use lighting um, to create a mood when you're trying to woo. If Does anybody still say woo? I don't know. Just you I'm and I. Old, yeah, I'm old school. But when you're trying to woo a young lady, or I assume when a young lady is trying to woo you, not that that's ever happened to me, but you, know, you use lighting. <laughs> so anyway, lighting. So what are UFOs lighting? What are ghosts or the experience of ghosts? Mm-hmm. Well, I've done that. I've had a number of experiences. And so I looked at that through the prism of horror films and yeah. horror novels, frankly, and anything that has to do with horror. And we would say, well, the ghosts are, um, let's assume that they're the unfriendly kind, you know. And I had one or two of those experiences on ghost cases where I was in a situation that seemed very uncomfortable, uh, frankly, quite frightening. And in one or two cases, Holly and I literally left the site because we were scared. So let's assume that it's not a good ghost experience. Let's assume it's a what we might call a bad one scary one and everybody says oh well this these are evil demons or ghosts or whatever you want to call them well i would look at it you know why would anybody do this if they didn't mean you harm well i would say the same thing about david cronenberg or the people who wear make the paranormal activity movies Mm -hmm. or any of these kinds of films they don't even have to be horror they can be suspense or thriller uh, where they shock they surprise you they scare you um I remember seeing The Blair Witch Project when I was younger. I was sitting next to my fiance at the time in a packed theater, like literally packed, couldn't, it was sold out, and it had been playing for two or three weeks. There was a high school girl on my immediate left. Now, in hindsight, you can look back at The Blair Witch Project and say it wasn't a very good movie. It's really not very scary once you know what's going to happen. The problem is you don't know what's going to happen as it's going along. So they build a sense of dread, and at the very end, I mean, if you're one of the people listening who has never seen the Blair Witch Project, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, but she goes, the surviving character goes down into the basement of um, of this sort of cabin that they found, and um, there's another person there, we, we never really find out who the other person is, everybody else is dead, and that's it, that's the big scare, but when that happened, this girl literally reached over, grabbed my arm, because my arm was, re- I think she wasn't going for me, she was going for the arm of the chair, but she got me, and claw marks into my arm. You could hear people breathe and screaming. And she was like clawing into my arm. And I was thinking, okay, you're cute, but I'm sitting next to my my fiance. This is not good. Or yeah. Maybe later. And we were all scared. I, I admit it. I was scared. So you would say, well, why would anybody, A, do that to us? Mm-hmm. And why would we willingly subject ourselves to the point of paying money and taking our time to experience that? And fear is, as I write in the book, One of those ways of challenging ourselves, of convincing ourselves that we're alive. I think of really focusing our attention in to something. Now, what that attention is being focused into, I don't know. So could you
1: actually say that fear is a built-in reality, check?
2: Yes, absolutely. I believe it is. I believe if we are dealing with an advanced non-human intelligence, Mm -hmm. it is one of the ways, and I think they're using artistic forms what I would call artistic forms like horror films and stuff, things that we would find scary to not test us in a lab rat kind of way, but to give us the opportunity to test ourselves and to see what our reactions are going to be and to make us think. I think all of this is designed, all. and when I say all of this, I mean the paranormal, mm-hmm. to make us think. And so I think all of these things are different. Man- I don't believe ghosts are, as I write in the book, our dear old departed granny haunting this one particular room for all of eternity. Uh, and I think in one of my pithier lines, I say, I would like to think that if there is, you know, a God, um, he has more imagination than your average reality TV producer. So whatever is waiting for us, whether it's heaven or reincarnation or oblivion, frankly, I would, it, I can't imagine it's as banal as haunting this one particular place for all of eternity. So I don't believe that whatever happens to us, we don't come back as ghosts. That's the one thing I don't believe, but I do believe. And there's a you would probably remember this, there's a great old episode of Star Trek, the original series, where they beam down to a planet and they run into these two sort of alien creatures that have taken the form of witches. There's a female witch who tries to seduce Kirk, of course. Yeah. And then there's a there's a male warlock. Who's much less powerful?
1: Yes, I remember that series, that one. Yeah,
2: and they have a they have a very low budget. They have a cat, literally yeah. a black cat. But they blow them up. You know, it's, but you can tell it's a black. cat. Yeah, and at the very
1: and, end, they turn into these two little uh, these two little alien like creatures. That's right. Who yeah.
2: kind of look like little plants that the way of talking is sort of like a, a sort of sick dolphin. <laughs> kind yeah. Kind of, and uh, and they die. But that whole episode is kind of what I'm talking about because it's about fear. And so what. The alien, she goes bad and she tries to take over and everything. But the warlock alien says, well, no, we came here to interact with you, to see who you were, to test you, to find out about you. And this is one of the ways that we're choosing to do Mm -hmm. it. Now, my partner has gone crazy and she's bad and evil and you have to kill her. But our original intention was not to harm you. Our original intention was to, and this is one of the ways that we're doing it, we're pulling these things from your memory, your fears those things that are stuck in your mind and we're playing them back to you in essence to see how you'll react. And I didn't actually include that in the book. I'm just kind of thinking of it now. I should have included it in the book because it's a perfect example of a, of a a popular culture way of looking at it, of what I'm talking about. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see when we talk about the paranormal, the art of the imagination and the human condition, this is the paranormal, the advanced non-human intelligence using artistic Forms of communication, of of interacting with us, which is what artists do when you create a painting, when you create a song, when you create a film, you're trying to send a message of some sort. Some films send better messages than others. Some songs send better messages than others, even if it's just to evoke a mood, Mm -hmm. like a Mozart symphony or a, a, a Beethoven concerto. That's what I think they're doing. And the question then, where the human condition comes in, is how we react and then how it inspires us. And I use the term inspire repeatedly throughout the book. It's designed to inspire us to think of something bigger, broader, and I would say better than ourselves. And to make us aware that we're part of something bigger, broader, and better than just our individual selves.
1: To keep it to keep us open to all possibilities. Absolutely. Yep. Now, now, Paul, you start off your book by saying that you have no interest in preaching to the converted. What did you mean by that? That one's actually pretty simple. There's three groups of people.
2: I think this is true in almost anything, but there's three basic groups of people, people who believe something, Mm -hmm. people who don't believe something, and then the people in what my good friend Greg Bishop calls the excluded middle, who don't believe, don't disbelieve, have an open mind, are willing to examine the possibilities. I have no interest in preaching to the converted. I don't have any interest in I mean, I have no problem talking to people, of course, but my purpose yeah. in writing this was not for people who believe that aliens from Zeta Reticuli crash-landed in the desert in Roswell, and that's the that's the narrative that they believe in. Or, conversely, that um, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, it's the only way to get to heaven, and he's the one true God, mm-hmm. or Allah's the one true God, or whatever. That's That's great. All of those are valid opinions, not interested. Conversely, I'm not interested in talking to people on the other side, the sort of evangelical disbelievers who say, none of this is possible. Um, Atheism is the only way to go. There clearly can't be a God. There clearly can't be space aliens coming here. Ghosts are nothing. There's nothing to any of this. Okay, well, you're the converted as well. You're just converted in a different way. What I want to do is I want to talk to all the people who hold neither of those positions. And I want to say, look, let's imagine. Here's my imagining. And frankly, I admit right up front, some of it's rank speculation. Um, A thought experiment, if you will. But I think that's what all great philosophers have done. And I'm certainly not saying I'm a great philosopher, but I tried to work in that that mode of just putting things out there, Mm -hmm. saying why I think it might be possible, why it might make sense, and then saying, look, if you can think of something different or better, great. If this inspires you to think at all, even if you don't agree with me, that's great, too. But just think. And I find that the people on either extreme, what I call the converted, really don't do a whole lot of thinking.
1: All right, Paul, I hate to do this to you again. We've got to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. Paul Kimball's our very special guest. Always a welcomed guest here in the X-Zone. He's got a brand new book out, x The Other Side of Truth. Visit his website, www.redstarfilmtv.com. That's www.redstarfilmtv.com. We'll be back on the other side of the news. Don't go away.
0: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
1: Hi, everyone. Rob McConnell here, and I wanted to spend a moment on Internet streaming. Everybody has heard about Internet streaming, but not many know much about it. Did you know the Internet stream's just about everything? Movies. From new releases to old classics This product is a real winner. To learn more about 123 Ready TV, visit our website at www.xzbn.net. Welcome back, everyone. Paul Kimball is my special guest, www.redstarfilmtv.com. Paul's got a brand new book out. It's entitled The Other Side of the Truth. Always great having you with us, Paul. Congratulations on your new book, but uh, in your book, you, you know, you talk, about UFOs, you talk about ghosts you, talk about reincarnation and much more. but let let me ask you this. Do you think that there is actual a physical reality to UFOs?
2: That's an interesting question. Um, you can look at it from two ways. First of all, what is physical reality? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I suppose I get into in the book. there's there's clearly a physical reality that we can see and feel. I can touch the desk in front of me or the keyboard or whatever. So that if you're talking about that kind of physical reality, are they spaceships from another planet, you know, nuts and bolts, that kind of hard thing? I certainly wouldn't rule it out because if you look at a couple of factors, one, the age of the universe, let's just say the age of the galaxy. Right. Um, and the fact that we're finding more and more Earth-like planets um, in even our own corner of the galaxy now, then it stands to reason that there's intelligent life out there somewhere it similarly stands to reason that there's a 50-50 chance that it's more intelligent than us. You could go either way. It's less intelligent or it's more intelligent. I'll take those chances. I'll say, Mm -hmm. well, okay, there's a pretty good chance it's more intelligent than us. It might be more intelligent by five years or 100 years or 1,000 years, which is really a drop in the bucket, in the universal sort of bucket of time. Yeah. So let's assume that they're they're 800 years ahead of us. Mm -hmm. I'm going to use that number because that's a number that Michio Kaku who I talk about in the book, in the first chapter, I went to see him in London, uh, England, when I was there in 2009, give a lecture at the, um, at the RSA. He was talking about his book, I think it's the book, The Physics of the Impossible. And among the many different things that he talks about in the book, you know, time travel, phasers, all that sort of stuff. But he definitely talks about extraterrestrial civilizations and things like traveling between the stars. And he identifies really four types of civilizations, type 0, type 1, type 2, and type 3. Mm-hmm. We are, in essence, type 0, which is anything from a pre-industrial society right up to an almost, and I might get this slightly wrong, but I'm in the ballpark, sort of almost a post-industrial global society where you have a global energy grid and and stuff that we're getting towards, but we're certainly not there yet. So that, that level of development can't clearly travel between the stars. They can barely get off their own planet. But the type one society, which he, I believe in his book, says we're, he thinks we're probably about 800 years away from, which again is a drop in the universal time bucket. But you know, 800 years could be 400 years, mm-hmm. 1200, who knows um, the way things are advancing, but we're close. Well, okay, let's say that there is another civilization out there like that. Well, the type one civilization is a truly planet. We're not even talking about the really far out types two and three. They're a a planetary society that has harnessed the energy of the planet and is capable of traveling within their solar system at least. Then you go to the Type 2 and maybe, you know, just beyond the solar system if you wanted to create generational ships and stuff like that. So then you go to a Type 2 and a Type 3 civilization and they would absolutely be able to travel between the stars. Kaku thinks that those civilizations probably exist. So if they exist, there's no reason why they couldn't be coming here. So... In theory, yeah, there could be a physical reality if that's what you mean by physical reality, which is what I think most people mean by it. But no, having said all of that, Uh um, I don't think that that's the answer to the UFO phenomenon. Uh, It's a possibility. Maybe the advanced non-human intelligence that we're dealing with is indeed from another planet, they're extraterrestrials, they remain hidden, which would certainly be within their capabilities. Mm-hmm. All of the things that we describe through the paranormal would be well within their capabilities, such as invisibility cloaks, for lack of a better term, and all of the stuff that you would see in Star Trek, transportation, all that kind of stuff, advanced mental abilities, being able to get into our consciousness, all of that would be within the realm of what they're capable of, if they can get here from there. So, so yeah, sure, I suppose it could be, I just don't think Think so, but that's my own particular belief. My own particular belief is we're dealing with something more tied to our own planet, yeah. our and ourselves. But I certainly wouldn't, you know, that's me. It's it's absolutely possible, and would be within the realm of possibility if these creatures are coming here. They could have the exact same motivations as say those aliens in that Star Trek episode we were talking about yes. to find out about us, to discover about us, um, and to do it by interacting with us in a way that would not disturb our development so that, you know, the experiment, if you want to call it an experiment, would occur naturally, but they would be able to judge our reactions. And frankly, I do say this in the book, in the human condition part, any advanced civilization that is coming here from another planet, or anywhere else for that matter, whatever the advanced non-human intelligence is, would, if they wanted to do us harm, it wouldn't take them very long. They could destroy us, I would say, in the blink of an eye, to use a metaphor. If you can get from another planet to here, then you would have a technological capability. I mean, you see these movies, you hear people talking about resisting aliens and you know fighting back with our jet fighters and stuff, which is patently ridiculous. If you can get from even Zeta Reticuli to Earth, then nothing we have is going to be of any concern to you. So if they wanted to do us harm, they could. And I'll use a real quick example to illustrate that in our own world. If you were to go back to 1805, which is really not that long ago, the Battle of Trafalgar, the greatest naval battle in... In probably history, but certainly in recorded history, where the British under Nelson defeated the combined Franco Spanish fleet um, off Trafalgar. Well, okay, to the British, that was the sort of apotheosis of the Royal Navy. It was the high point. The next hundred years, they basically um, created the Pax Britannicana, uh, Britannica based on that. They ruled, the, you know, Britain ruled the waves, as the saying yeah. goes. Those were the most advanced ships of their time. Go to 1914, the Royal Navy still ruled the waves, although not quite, perhaps, as much. Um, There were other competing actors. World War I starts. Now the Royal Navy fleet doesn't consist of these small, cannon-firing wooden ships with sails of a 100 years ago. The Royal Navy consists, as does the German Navy and all other navies, of dreadnoughts, primarily, but submarines, destroyers, cruisers. But the the ultimate manifestation of naval power in 1914 was the dreadnought, which were these massive, ironclad, um, steam-driven uh, battleships with 18-inch guns that could lob shells for, uh, I'm not exactly sure how far, but miles and miles, 10, 20 miles. You, the Fleets would never have to see each other. If, that, if one of those dreadnoughts had traveled back in time 100 years and encountered the combined fleets of Trafalgar, they could have laid waste to the navies of the United Kingdom, France, and Spain within an hour. So there's 100 years of technological change, even in our own, using an example from our own time, and showing how at the height of our power in 1805, by 1914, the height of that power is irrelevant. Travel 25 years further than that, and you have the atomic bomb. So those wonderful fleets that they fought the Battle of Jutland with in Mm -hmm. 1916 between Germany and and Britain could have been decimated, as I write in the book. Here's the punchline. The sailors could have been standing on the decks of of the German and British fleets. They would have seen if a nuclear submarine from, say, 1960 even had been able to travel back in time with one nuclear weapon and launched it at those combined fleets, here's what the sailors would have seen. They would have seen a bright light that would have started encompassing the entire ocean. And as it was coming towards them, their last thought would have been, before they were all annihilated, that must be an act of God. this is beyond anything that we can. We are the greatest thing we have ever dreamt of, and we are all about to be destroyed by this blinding flash of light. Right. They couldn't. They could not possibly imagine what could have caused that other than an act of God. That was just 25 years, or say, if you want to put a nuclear submarine into it, 50 years at the most after the Battle of Jutland. So now you can see we've gone from 100 years, which is the time period between Trafalgar and Jutland and the, and one ship at Jutland being able to destroy those fleets. Now, 50 years, one submarine that could have been under the water, they never even would have seen it coming, could have destroyed the fleets at Jutland. It's all compacting. So now we look at aliens coming here, and we say, well, if, you know, imagine what the aliens have compared to what we have. So there's nothing we have that could stop them. If they wanted to do us harm, they would, which is a very long-winded way, but an important way, I think, of putting it in perspective and saying, Whatever the non-human, advanced non-human intelligence mm-hmm. is doing, it is not to do us harm. And to me, that is just pure and plain logic, because otherwise they would have done it by now. So to me, I look at it and I say, they're interacting with us. The, the sort of opposite of doing us harm, two things. One would be benign neglect, and I don't think that's happening. Um, and you can look at, at the way that it's all developing, and you can even go back to biblical times and see... How, we've, how an advanced non-human intelligence has interacted. They interact directly with us. That's not benign neglect. They're doing it for a reason. And so the only possible conclusion that you can come to is that the reason is to help us in some way. And I believe that the way they're trying to help us is to help us help ourselves in the same way that a parent tries to help without doing the homework for the kid. You know, the kid comes home yeah. in grade two with the math. The parent shouldn't, anyway, be doing the math for them because the child will never learn. But the parent can offer encouragement. The parent can make sure the kid goes to school. The parent can make sure it does its homework. Mm-hmm. And if the kid has a really difficult question, the parent maybe can help out. But the kid still has to do the work. And I think that's the relationship that we're looking at here. We're okay. the children. We still have to do the work. But they can give us clues. They can inspire us as parents and and adults should do for children. Paul and Kim I Kim think that's what's
1: happening. Paul Kimble's my guest, www.redstarfilmtv.com. We're talking about Paul's new book The Other Side of the Truth and in chapter 4 you describe an encounter with what you call a shadow person late on late one night while you were walking through the streets of a small town in a Czech republic could you take us the uh, could you take us and the listeners who may not know the story through it
2: Sure. I'd love to take you all back to Český Krumlov in the Czech Republic. If you're, if you're ever traveling in Europe, Český Krumlov is a world heritage town. It's, um, it's tremendous. It's one of those old school Central European, I guess it's a city now, mm-hmm. but the core of it is the old town. So if you've seen a picture of castles and princes and all that sort of stuff, you kind of have an idea of what Český Krumlov is like. Very narrow, winding streets, alleyways, I mean, really kind of something out of a, uh, a movie or something where you might see James yeah. Bond running through these streets or whatever. So I was there with Holly Stevens, my co-host on Ghost Cases. We had been traveling after we finished shooting our episodes in the United Kingdom in 2009. You know, we're already over there, Rob, so we decided, sure. hey, let's take a vacation. Because it was the end, of this, the end of the shoot for the series. We spent three weeks in the United Kingdom after that, Scotland, England. And then we said, well, let's go to the continent, and we picked the Czech Republic. So we went to Prague for a few days, and the last place we went to was this Chesky um, Krumlov which has the second largest castle in the Czech Republic and all this great stuff. So we go there. To kind of make a long story short, um, we spend the day. We're staying in a wizard's castle. It's it's literally a little inn that's shaped like a wizard's castle. Cool. Yeah, I know. It's like something out of The Hobbit. I had booked it weeks in advance. It's important to note at this point that Holly and I were not a couple. So I had booked it weeks in advance, and I had booked a double room, meaning there were two beds in the room. When we got there, they had changed ownership, and the new owners hadn't gotten the memo that our room, and they only had I think three or four rooms in the place, was mm-hmm. supposed to be one of the two bedrooms. So they put us in one of the one bedrooms. Um, the other rooms were taken that night. Now the guy said he was very apologetic. He said, "Look, we can put you in the room you want tomorrow, or you can go find another hotel, um, or you can have this, you know, this room." And he, he gave me a good grade and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't his fault. So I said, "Fine, I'll sleep on the floor." Seemed like a good idea at the time, Rob, but it wasn't. (laughs) I see. Uh, The floor was really hard. So Ollie gave me all her blankets and everything, and I uh still couldn't get to sleep. It was about 11 o'clock. I said, I'm going to take a walk. And she said, do you want me to come? I said, no, you're tired. How much trouble can I get in in Chesky-Krumlov on a Monday night?
1: Knowing you a lot.
2: Yes, well, as it turns (laughs) out. So as I'm walking, you know, the streets are quiet. Mm -hmm. There's nobody else out. It was Monday night in June, so it hadn't really hit the tourist season yet. And... I eventually made my way down to town, the town square, which is this, like most European towns, a central square surrounded by a bunch of buildings, um, quite large. And so I was sitting on a bench and not really paying much attention to anything. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw what I thought was a guy, like, you know, a person. Yeah. And I've spent enough time taking walkabouts here in Halifax and big cities. I was a police officer briefly once. Um, I know when you're in another country, don't fear people. But yeah. if you see other people, you at least you know keep an eye out on them late at night because you just never know. So I took a look and I saw this sort of shadow. It looked like a guy in the center of the square. And then I turned my head to look in another direction. I turned back and and this thing that whatever it was was gone.
3: Hmm.
2: Now to me there was there was no way that in the two seconds that I was looking away that this shadow and I'll call it a shadow could have made it to any of the buildings, even if it had run. And, you know, sort of the door had been open and somebody had been waiting to let them in. If all of that had happened, Usain Bolt couldn't have made it that quickly. So I thought, well, okay, I clearly have to go home because I am tired and I am really starting to see things. So back I started to walk. It was about a 15-minute walk back to the hotel, the Wizard's Castle. There was a toy store on the way there in the shopping district, and I had been there earlier in the day. And uh, it had a whole bunch of wooden toys. And I wanted to, I looked in, I stopped to look into the window and say, okay, I'm going to scout out stuff to buy for my niece and nephews. As I was doing that, looking down over, I felt something like sort of this presence, this weird vibe, whatever you want to call it. And I looked up in the window, which is in front of me, and over my shoulder, I see the shadow figure. And okay. That's you flip around when somebody's right behind you. Yeah. You're about to get mugged or somebody wants to ask you for directions. Those are kind of your two options. So I kind of turn around really quickly. I'm actually quite nervous, and there's nobody there. Nothing. Turn back around, look in the window. Nothing except the wooden mice. At this point, I was like, great. I am now really quickening my pace to get back to the. I got to cross a bridge over a river and walk through the castle district. I'll be back to the wizard's. Um, Place. So as I'm going across the bridge, I hear behind me, and when you read the book in the ghost chapter, you'll you'll see about this place Holly and I were at in England called St. Edith, Edith's Church where we had an experience with horses' hooves and stuff. All Illinois. right, I hate
1: to do this again, but we're sure. going to have to have a cliffhanger here. Paul Kimball is my nice special Thanks. guest. We're talking about Paul's new book, The Other Side of Truth. His website, www.redstarfilmtv.com dot com that's www.redstarfilmtv.com and uh, paul and i will be back on the other side of this break as the x continues from our studios in hamilton ontario canada don't go away
0: For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net.
3: Hello, I'm Pete Marsh. With my daughter Justina, we will be presenting the new radio show, Too Good To Be True. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. But with the help of Justina's amazing gifts, we're going to gain insight into questions that don't yet have complete answers. Will the new insights be too good to be true? Well, that will depend on what you are prepared to believe. Please join us as we start on this journey together. For more information on Too Good To Be True, visit www.xzbn.net.
0: Dreams are our personal gateways into infinite wisdom.
1: Paul Kimball's my special guest this hour, Exo Nation. www.redstarfilmtv.com. He's got a brand new book out, just in time for Christmas. It's entitled "The Other Side of Truth." Paul, uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's always great talking to you. Congratulations on your book. But we left you in the middle of a cliffhanger before we went to the break.
2: That's just good radio, Rob. Leaving like a cliffhanger. Yes, come back, people um so yeah and thank you very much for having me it's always great chatting with you and chatting to the folks in the exo nation i i always like coming on the show um so yeah i'm i'm i've had these two encounters with sort of let's call them a shadow person yeah. or whatever i'm on the bridge i'm standing next to a statue and i had been doing some stuff sort of experimenting with time travel that's a long story um earlier in the evening on the bridge so the bridge was a place that i had stopped before and there's a, there's statues all along the bridge, and there's a statue of Jesus right in the middle of the bridge. So as I get to the statue of Jesus, as I'm pick, quickening my pace, getting away from the toy store, and uh, and heading across the bridge, I hear behind me these what I can only describe as footsteps, clop, and it's a wooden bridge, so mm-hmm. clop clop clop. So I, you know, I describe in the book, I balled up my fist. I mean, I'm a lover. I'm, I'm not even a lover, but <laughs> if I was anything, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm, uh, Terrible, terrible. No, no interest in fighting. I Very low threshold of pain. But you know, sometimes you just, so I balled yeah. up my fist, I spun around, and when I spun around there was nothing there, right. but then I felt on my shoulder, it's, it's like what it would feel like if a police officer reached out, grabbed you by the shoulder, and was trying to spin you around and say, hey, excuse me, sir, you know, that kind of yeah. thing, the stereotypical movie cop or whatever. So <laughs> I've already spun around once, mm-hmm. so now I spin around again, and there's nothing there. So at that point, I wish I could claim that there was some is some great moral to the story or something or that I had a, a profound conversation with a shadow person. Nope. I left very quickly um, because it had been an extremely weird sort of thing. Uh, it was definitely um, late at night. I was alone and and. Yeah, I'm a frady cat, and I've never had any problem admitting that. That, you know, part of this thing is I don't think looking back on it, anybody's meaning to do me harm, because if they wanted to, they could have. Yeah. But they were definitely getting a fear reaction. And so part of that is then, you know, over the three years after that, I think back to that incident, and it makes me think, not just about the shadow people or whatever you want to call them, but about what could have been behind it. And I think that's part of, as we talked about earlier, the point that they're trying to get across. Just think about something beyond just you and the literal world that you're living in. So broaden your horizons. And they definitely broadened mine on that evening in Chesky Krumlov.
1: We've got about uh, 60 seconds left, Paul. And, uh, you know, your final chapter is called It's All in the Hearing. What do you mean by that?
2: It's actually the title of a song I wrote when I was a musician many years ago. But it's And, again, the art weaves in with the paranormal and the and the human condition stuff. But at at the end of the day, how do you see a film? How do you hear an album? Mm -hmm. You have to buy a ticket, or you have to buy the album. You have to make the art available. You have to go to the art gallery. And I believe that it really is thats sort of what it's all in the hearing is about. You have to listen. You have to be willing to listen. I think we can all access this. I think you, too, can go to Chesky Krumlov and meet a shadow person. But you have to be willing. You have to buy a ticket to that. You have to have your mind open to the experience.
1: And so... Yeah, you have to be willing to listen, and then I think you'll hear. Paul, as always, great talking to you. I wish you much success. Where is your book available? Um,
2: It's a slow rollout. At the moment, it's at CreateSpace, which is one of Amazon's publishing wings. It'll be on Amazon.com late next week, and then in hard copies and bookstores and stuff, early 2013.
1: And then after that, eBooks. All right, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us. Look forward to speaking to you. We'll have to have you back on around Halloween. How does that sound?
2: Oh, absolutely. I love doing ghosty Halloween shows.
1: All right, Paul Kimball. Take care, my good friend. www.redstarfilmtv.com. Once again, the name of his new book, The Other Side of Truth. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the Exome continues, right here from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away.